We are studying the book of Micah, a minor prophet, minor only in the sense that his book is seven chapters long, and only in the sense that he's speaking specifically about visions. He's speaking on behalf of God about visions to Samaria and to uh, Judah specifically, and so the scope is narrowed, but it's not that his truth is not true truth. It's not that it's not God speaking. It is God speaking to him and God speaking through him for specific situations and needs. What we find as we went through our overview last week of this book is uh, that it is a significant and important book. It is God's revelation of himself. And one of the things that we want to make sure that we do is that we see the content. Uh, we want to see who God is. Who is this God that's dealing with his people and how does he deal with them? I will never forget being in Miss Leggett's English class in the sixth grade at Bogachetta Elementary School in South Mississippi. When the intercom clicked on and the secretary from the office said, Miss Leggett, and she responded, yes. She said, is Marty Price in your classroom? And I said, as she said, yes, he is. She said, would you send him to the office, please? Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> it's happened to many of us. Uh, or, or how about you get a memo or an email or a text from your boss that says, I need you to speak with me. Come to my office. Right, have you ever received one of those or had that sort of calling in or how about when your spouse or your parent or someone else that you care about deeply says when you get home we must talk do you know what I mean about the sense of kind of your stomach falling that sense of impending doom that sense of there's something going to happen that's going to be unpleasant um, we have much that situation as we Look at chapter 1, and today we're looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2 specifically, two whole chapters in the book of Micah. Uh, we begin with, again, the, the first passage, and I want us to read again verses 1 through 5. The Lord gave this message to Micah of Morsheth during the years when Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings in, of Judah. The visions he saw concerned both Samaria and uh, Jerusalem. I want you to understand the very first thing is, Micah, this is not some op-ed piece that he wrote. This is not an opinion paper. This is not a white paper. This is not Micah's view of God. This is not Micah saying, I think this is what God would say were God to speak. He makes it very clear. This is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking. And what we will see in our descriptions that we look at is this is God describing himself. And the, one of the questions that is asked frequently or one of the questions that, that I encounter in, in, in conversation is about God and his anger or God and his wrath. You guys have heard sermons and messages on the wrath of God. And I do have a question for you. When I went to the principal's office, Mr. Hux, it was not a pleasant encounter. I don't know if you guys will understand this phraseology, but I got two licks for disobedience. Now, I want you to know that the two licks for disobedience that started in the principal's office continued when I got home. <laughs> and it was, in a, and it was uh, a direct response to my direct disobedience of a very, very clearly communicated law. Now, there were mitigating circumstances, but I don't want to go into all of those. But uh, there was punishment involved because of disobedience. 
the children of Israel found themselves in that situation, kind of being called on the carpet, but rather than them being summoned to God's office, he tells them, I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to see you. And this message is not Micah's view of God. As I said, it is God's description of himself. And I want you to understand that as a church and as a congregation, and certainly as leaders, we want to make sure that we understand who God is by how he has revealed himself. We can make images of God. We can get ideas about God. We can get concepts of God that have nothing to do with God that have nothing to do with how he's revealed himself. And so we look at Scripture, God's Word, about himself. And so we're going to look at four questions this morning to help us see and understand God in the text. The first one, does God get angry or is our God angry? The, this whole series is, who is a God like our God? That's what Micah's name means. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like Jehovah? Who is like our God? And we need to, before we can answer that question, we need to understand some things about who God is, what God is like. Is our God an angry God? Another way, does God get angry? Second question is, what is it that makes God angry? Third is it, how does God show his anger? And then fourth, we'll look at, is anger all there is? So the first question, is our God an angry God? Again, picking up and reading in verse 2 and reading through verse, uh, well, reading through verse 4, 2 through 4. Attention or hear let all the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you or bearing witness against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and he tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. So having read that, how would you answer the question, does God get angry? Does it sound like he's happy in this? Does it sound like he's coming to give them encouragement? Does it sound like he's coming to just pat them on the back? And yet when we think about the anger of God, it becomes uncomfortable for us. We don't like to think of God as angry. We don't like to think of the wrath of God, to use a biblical phrase, or, or, or the fact that God exercises judgment but that's mostly because of our experience with anger. The reasons and the ways that we ourselves get mad. Do you ever get mad? Do you ever wake up mad? Most, many of you don't. Praise the Lord. Occasionally, you just wake up in a bad mood. Just, just mad. Or we'll have a bad attitude or something will set us off and our emotions rise. Uh, Scott preached from James chapter 4. Why are there fights and quarrels among you? You have not because you ask not. When you ask, you ask for the wrong things. You're selfish and you're grasping. And it results in anger. It results in quarreling our selfishness. And sometimes we get mad just because we can. Our anger stems from our pride, our not getting our way. Or sometimes people are just angry out of malice and intentional evil. Sometimes people are abusive in anger and anger becomes uncontrolled. You have heard the phrase to fly off of the handle. But I do want you to remember that in Ephesians chapter 4, we have the exhortation, be angry and sin not. You guys are familiar with that. 
Yeah, we, we do have the exhortation and with it the understanding that there is an anger that is not sin. There is an anger that is expressed in a way that is not sin. Do you guys remember the, the, the stories of Jesus going into the temple and overturning the money changers' temple, uh, tables in the temple? Righteous anger, righteous wrath. So just at the onset, let us recognize that there's a category of anger that is righteous and that is even required of the righteous, and that is a characteristic of a holy God. Does God get angry from a simple reading of the text? The answer is yes. Scripture is replete with references to the wrath and the anger of God. As a matter of fact, if you want to go more into this study, I'd recommend that you pick up the second half of the book of Matthew. Did you know that Jesus, his preaching is filled with the wrath of God or the anger of a holy God? Paul deals with it theologically, uh, but honestly, Jesus talks more about it than all of the writings of Paul combined. But if you look at Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, you'll see a, a, a theological approach to the anger, anger of God. And of course, Revelation, at the end of Revelation, you'll see the righteous judgment of God. Scripture is replete with reference to the wrath and the anger of God. But some people deny it. Some people just say, oh, no, not my God. God's a God of love. God's a God of kindness and mercy. God was mad in the Old Testament. Then we had 400 years of silence, which was God taking a nap. And then we have the New Testament, and he woke up and he felt better. Uh, and, and I want you to understand that that is a horrible picture of God. Some people simply deny that God ever gets angry, that God is love or God is grace. And, and there are some, several recent books that purport that, a universalism approach to the love of God. We won't have time to address all of that in this sermon, but I want you to know that we're committed to seeing God as he reveals himself in Scripture. Amen? Some people relegate anger to simply impersonal cause and effect. Well, yes, there's the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is simply the consequences of the poor decisions that you make. The wrath of God is impersonal, was put into place in God's moral structure, and so his wrath is expressed simply as the impersonal consequences of bad decisions that you make. The problem with that is not the character of God as revealed in Scripture. Certainly there are consequences to sin. We all know what they are. We know that what a man sows, he reaps. But we also know we have a righteous God who gives us righteous rules and expectations for our good and for his glory and that he exercises judgment. God takes sin personally. We'll get to more than that in just a moment. Some people... Uh, just kind of excuse or say, you know, I don't like talking about the wrath of God. And I don't like talking about the anger of God. I'll never forget when I was pastoring the Deaf Church in Greenville, I had a man come up. And we had been doing a series on uh, evangelism. What do we tell people when we talk about the gospel and about Jesus Christ? And he came up and he said, in, in one of the sermons afterwards, he came and he met with me in my office. And he says, I really don't like your approach to evangelism. I'm always willing to learn. What, what would you suggest? He said, we shouldn't tell people about all the negative stuff about evangelism. We should tell people uh, uh, about the coming judgment or wrath or anger. We should tell people about the goodness of God. It is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance and what God offers them and how God has made a way for them. And, and of course, my response is, we should certainly do that. But if we do that without dealing with the seriousness of sin and the coming judgment, we're giving an incomplete gospel. Amen. It's important that we grasp and that we understand the depth of this. 
So to deny a God who is angry at sin and at sinners is to deny the repeated and clear teaching of God's word. Even just a, a brief text from Psalm 11, the Lord tests the righteous. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall be shall behold his face. Now I would simply invite those of us who are uncomfortable with understanding or at least seeking to understand the wrath of God to ask ourselves why, particularly if you don't have a relationship with Christ. If you're curious or you're questioning and, and, and you don't like when we talk about judgment, when we don't talk about a, a, a God who justly addresses sin with, with anger and justice, why? What would keep us from this? I, I do want to just point out a couple of things really quick, and this is not a seminary course on theology, but I want you to understand something. God is God, and we're not. From before the existence of the world, He existed. He is independent of us and complete and whole in Himself. He is who He is, not who we want Him to be or who we can recolor Him or reframe Him or repaint Him to be. He is transcendent, above, and distinct. Of course, we have Romans 11 and passage in Isaiah and several passages that say how unsearchable are His ways, how magnificent is He's beyond our understanding. His ways are not our ways. His ways are as far above ours as the heavens are above the earth. I want you to know that we can understand what He has revealed about Himself to us, but I want you to understand that we need to trust and grasp, believe what he says about himself. Not try to make up a, a, a God that is not the God of the Scripture. He is eternal. He is other. He is independent. I'm afraid that too many times we relegate God as some, somebody to help our life get better. God, make my relationships work. Uh, God, make my income go up. Uh, God, make sure that I have this, and God, make sure that I have that. And it becomes, you know, uh, God is simply my coach to tell me how to do this and my coach to tell me how to do that without recognizing he is our holy, sovereign creator of the universe. Sometimes we deny the anger of God simply because we don't like it or because we don't understand it or we have some sort of caricature of God's anger, but don't let it keep you from seeing God as he is. As a matter of fact, if you'll go to the next slide. What I'd like in this first thing is for us to commit ourselves to seeing God as he is, not how he wants us to be. And for those of you who are believers here today who have been walking with Christ, I want you to understand the wrath of God, the anger of God. If you only think of the anger of God in a negative sense, or only, then you haven't yet meditated on it completely. The wrath of God leads us to the understanding of the depth of God's love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you understand the wrath, the more you understand his love. The less we think of sin, people have said this throughout the centuries, and it's true. The, the less we think of sin, the less we think of that it's a big deal, the more we minimize the impact of sin, the less we think of the Savior, the more we minimize what Christ accomplished on the cross. To know our God as He is, we need to recognize that He is independent of us, that He is God. Like Isaiah said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. God does get angry. But here's what I want you to understand. He doesn't get angry like you get angry. 
He doesn't get angry like I get angry. He doesn't get angry in sin and pride. His anger is always just. His anger is always righteous. His anger is always for the right reasons. And it's always expressed in the right way, which leads to the next question. If God gets angry, what is it that makes God angry? The next verses, uh, verse verse 5, the next verse, he says, And why is this happening? Why is God coming in the mountains, melting into the rivers? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yeah, the sins of the whole nation, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? It's Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah, in the southern kingdom? It's Jerusalem, its capital. So here's a question for you. What makes God angry? Give me a one-word answer. You can do better than that. Sin. What makes God angry? Sin. Sin, rebellion, disobedience. It's important that we understand this. You remember the northern kingdom. He talks about Samaria and the southern kingdom. Now, in this passage, he deals not only with sin. He seems to be dealing with three specific kinds of sin that are taking place. Uh, In the north, you had Solomon in the United Kingdom. You had Rehoboam. Then you had Jeroboam. Jeroboam divided the uh, the kingdom in half, you had ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, more or less. Uh, nine and a half, nine and a half. I mean, uh, three, two and a half. Uh, but you had the capital city was Samaria. How many of you actually listened to the R.G. Lee sermon I recommended or read the R.G. Lee sermon that I recommended from last week? All right. I, will, I love the responses that I've been getting. I, I, just, I think it's great. So I'll ask people, and I've had some people say, well, I started, but... I didn't make it all the way through. I had others who say, well, no, I just didn't even start. I, I, I tried to warn you, it's preaching from almost 100 years ago now. And so, the sty- well, 70 years ago. The style is different. The concept is, is different. But he tells the story. R.G. Lee, in, in his sermon, Payday Sunday, tells the story of Ahab and Jezebel and Naboth and Naboth's vineyard. Now, whether you listen to the sermon or not, you need to know the account of what took place because Ahab married Jezebel Jezebel blatantly worshiped Baal and Ahab in his rebellion against God built a temple in Samaria there's not supposed to be a temple in Samaria one temple in Jerusalem where all of Israel will come at least once a year to worship God in unity and yet Ahab built a temple and the temple that he built in Samaria was a temple to Baal a false god with prophets and practices. And the first sin that is pointed out, the first national sin, but the first specific sin that is pointed out is the sin of idolatry. What is the first, in, what is the first commandment? I am the Lord thy God. You shall have no other gods before me. One God. One God. Worship no other God than God, and they disobeyed this. And we see it happening in the northern kingdom, and we see it finding its way to the southern kingdom, even all the way to Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of our God. And then he goes on with the list of cities, what sorrows. uh, He goes on with the list of cities in the subsequent verses. Uh, And and each of those is a play on words. I won't get into into that in this text just because of, of the time that we have. But I do want to read verses 8 through 9. Samaria in the north, then he says, Therefore I will mourn and lament. I will walk around barefoot and naked. This is Micah. He says, I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Why? For my people's wound is too deep to heal. Not only is it there, but it's here. It has reached into Judah 
even to the gates of the city. And so he points out the fact that they're not worshiping God, that they are worshiping idols, and it has angered God. And then in chapter 2, we see God calling out another sin specifically, or the sin of covetousness, or the sin of greed, or even the sin of theft. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, What sorrow awaits for you, or woe to you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans. You rise at dawn, and you hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. But this is what the Lord says, I will reward your evil with evil. So there was theft going on. There was covetousness that motivated it. There was the abuse of power and injustice. There was a violation of the commands to not steal and to not be covetous. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 says, To this very hour my people rise against me like an enemy. How, how How does God describe their rebellion and their greed? He says, You steal shirts right off their backs. Those who trusted you, you make them as ragged as men returning from battle. Or you plunder them like victors returning from battle. You have evicted women from their pleasant homes and forever stripped their children of all that God would give them. They were being unjust and stealing from their own people and God hated it. And the third sin specifically that he calls out in these first two chapters is they were violating the commandment to not bear false witness. There was lie and lying and false teaching going on back up in verse 6. Just to put this in context. And I have all this mapped out. I'll make it available to you in writing, but it just flows together. He says, don't say such things, the people respond. When Isaiah, when Micah, when Micah preaches and he proclaims the wrath of God and he points out their sin, they're saying, no, 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 no. Don't say that. Don't prophesy like that. That's not going to happen to us. Such disasters are never going to come our way. Should you talk that way, O family of Israel? Will the Lord's Spirit have patience with such behavior? If you would do what is right, you would find my words comforting. Down in verse 11, he even says this about their prophets, their preachers, religious leaders. Suppose a prophet full of lies would say to you, I'll preach to you the joys of wine and alcohol. That's just the kind of prophet you would like. What's he saying? He's saying, you won't even hear truth. Your preachers are preaching things that are not true and they're representing God to you and God's word to you as though God said it when it's not what God says at all. And you want that. You want people to tickle your ears. You guys remember that passage from 1 Timothy? You want people to pat you on the back and encourage you. uh, I'll never forget. Uh, Years ago, I went to a workshop and the pastor or the, minute, the speaker who was leading that workshop said, one of our jobs every Sunday is to build the people up so that by the time they get worn down on Saturday, they can come back and get built up on Sunday for the next week. And can I tell you, that's a horrible way to live. Our goal is not to just emotionally build you up or just to seek to say you can do this just so you can grind your way through another week and you're dependent upon some sort of emotional up and down. Our goal is to present the Word of God and how you can know God, how you can walk in the Spirit and experience God's power day by day by day so that every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. So that there is victory. Yes, there are struggles, but there are victories in the struggles every day as we go through those. 
all lying is sin, but particularly from those who speak on God's behalf. If there's any place that you need to hear the truth, it's from those who are purporting to speak from God. Amen? Now, here's a question for you. Have you ever had somebody tell others that you said something that you didn't say? Have you ever been quoted in the newspaper? All right, I have. And people brought the article to me, and I said, that is very fascinating because I don't remember saying anything like that. And the article that was written, the person said, and Pastor Marty Price said, da-da, 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 da-da. And they took one phrase. I speak in paragraphs. You all know that. They took one phrase out of one of my paragraphs and built a whole different meaning out of it. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe not in the newspaper, but if somebody said to someone else, and they, they, they misrepresented you to somebody else, did it make you mad? Can you imagine what it must be to God who calls people to speak for himself, who is truth? He doesn't just have truth. He doesn't just carry truth around. He doesn't just proclaim truth. He is truth for him to be misrepresented by those who purport to speak from him. Here we see the people didn't want uncomfortable truths. They didn't want to hear about God's anger, only about the things that they liked. And another way that pastors misrepresent God today or teachers or preachers or Christians is we, unho- we withhold unpopular truth or we speak popular falsehoods. Can, can, can I tell you just how ridiculous that is? If God says something, don't you want to know what he says and what he means? It's, this is ridiculous. It's like choosing a doctor that always diagnoses good health regardless of what condition you're in. Isn't that ridiculous? We want to know the truth. I hope you understand that God does get angry. God hates sin. He hates past sin. He hates the sin of others. And just to be abundantly clear, He hates your sin too. He hates my sin too. Can I, can I give us a point here when we recognize that it is sin that angers God? Is that we as Christians need to not play around with sin. The next slide. We need to learn to hate what God hates and love what God loves. We need to take sin seriously. We need to hold on to righteousness. We have simply lost, number one, the calling out of sin specifically often in North America, but we have also lost the need to pursue holiness and to be righteousness, be righteous, to allow the righteousness of Christ to live in us and live through us. We don't allow sin under the excuse of grace. We talked about that in our Sunday school class this morning. So does that mean believers can never sin, cannot sin? Is that what that means? How many of you perfect in here? You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Yes, Saved, cleansed, yes. Separated from our sin as far as the east is from the west, yes. God has taken our sin and he's trampled him under his feet, yes. He's cast him into the deepest sea, yes. He applied our sin to Christ on the cross, yes. Are you sinless? Can I tell you the difference between a lost person's perspective on sin and a saved person's perspective on sin? When a lost person feels guilt or feels the prompting of the Holy Spirit about something that they have done that is clearly ungodly, clearly a sin, they will take sin side against God and defend and rationalize the behavior or the thinking. But what is a believer to do? 
When God convicts us of sin, when we become aware of sin in our life, we are to stand with God against our sin. We are to recognize that what God said is true and what God said is right, and we agree with God. That's confession. We repent, we turn from, and turn to God and His sufficiency to walk with Him. When, our, when we are convicted of sin, we're not perfect, we're just forgiven. And we stumble and we fall, but we trust in Him. But we need to not become desensitized to the seriousness of sin. By the way, genuine confession of sin needs to be an ongoing part of every believer's life. Amen? We get quiet here. But genuine confession of sin needs to be a part, ongoing part of every believer's life. Suzanne sent, I don't know if you did this on Facebook or a test, but I'm going to chase a rabbit, hon. You may want to hold your little thing up. We get into walking with Christ sometimes. And the Christian life is simply a set of rules or simply a, a kind of a culture that we've adopted or simply a perspective. And what God calls us to is a daily walk with him in relationship. I'm not proclaiming to you that you can be without sin and perfect with the righteousness of Christ, but I am going to tell you that you can increasingly walk closer to him that you can increasingly experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I want to tell you that the joy that we talk about, that the peace that passes understanding, that the ability to stand firm, that the ability to just endure, that all of these things that are promises of God, too many times we don't experience because we've turned them into methodologies or we've turned them into formulas and we've forgotten that he's real, that he's God, and that he lives, and that he's powerful, and that he lives in us, and we've lost our identity. We're just kind of people following a goal rather than believers walking with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit in us. And you say, and appropriately so, how does that happen? And can I tell you, it happens when you open your mind to him and open your heart to him and turn your attention to him, and you open his word, and you meet him, and you say good morning Lord I'm here I don't know what to say or what not to say all I know is that I know that you're here and that you're real and you're alive and I love you and I trust you and I want to hear from you this morning and you open your word and his word and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and where he convicts of sin you agree and you confess and you repent rather than saying that's just the way I am rather than saying well this is good enough for today it is a journey, and there will be days that are great, and there will be days that are hard. But every day, over a progression of time, builds, and you become more conformed to the image of Christ as you walk more closely aware of the person of Christ who indwells in you. Does that make sense? It's a dependence. It's a trust. It's a faith as he works his way and his will in you. We need to take sin seriously. We need to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. So how does God show his anger? If God does get angry righteously and God gets angry about sin, it is sin that angers God. How does God show his anger? In judgment. In judgment. We see that, of course, in Romans chapter 1 where 
Paul expresses the wrath of God by saying he turns them over, he turns them over, he turns them over. In our passage, he gives a righteous judgment. There are consequences that are the judgment of a holy God. Nations experience them. Our nation has and will continue just like every other nation on the face of the earth. When we rebel against God, there are judgments that come. These, the ones who are covetousness, what does he say in chapter 2? He says, they're going to take the stuff that you've been taking from other people. It's going to be taken from you. When you go back to chapter 1 and he talks about the, the false worship, he talks about the destruction that is coming. You've got that list of cities. It's severe. He says, I will make your enemies to come. I will pour out wrath. I will destroy all her energies for years. Uh, and a few years later, this prophecy came true. Assyria came south and leveled Samaria. The northern tribes vanished as a nation from the pages of history. In chapter 2, he says disaster has come. That is an important thing. The past tense there doesn't mean it's already happened. In this case, it means it's as real as you, you can count on it as though it had already happened. I am planning disaster. He prophesied against Judah, against the, uh, the Babylonian captivity that was to come. They basically said, we have cast you off. We don't want you. We follow idols. And so they no longer wanted to live like God's people. And he says, okay, you will be dispersed. And you'll be dispersed to Babylon and Egypt. They will go from you in exile, verse 14. Sin leads to death for the unbeliever. Sin leads to discipline for the Christian. And the punishment is always appropriate. The covetous and rapacious have their lands and possessions taken from them. It's always appropriate. And it is always intended to lead people to repentance. By the way, History-wise, 721 B.C., the Assyrians come down through the area of Philistia along the coast of the Mediterranean, and they come to Lachish, and they destroy it. This prophecy fulfilled the northern kingdom already gone, 722. Now they're coming down into Jerusalem, and yet there was a king in Judah whose name was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah heard the prophecies of God. He heard the declarations of God, and he repented on his behalf, and he led the nation to repent. And the Assyrian army got as far as Lachish, and they stopped, and they were turned back by God until, until years later when Babylon came and took over. And so we need to recognize that God judges sin. He didn't turn his back on it. He didn't just excuse it. He didn't just say, well, that doesn't really matter. A righteous judge has to judge against sin. And so we need to recognize that God's judgment of sin is both present and it is to come. As surely, listen to me, this is, isn't this a joyful sermon for a beautiful day? As surely as Samaria was destroyed, as surely as Judah was taken into exile, hell is real and eternal judgment is real. And that ought to sober us. It ought to make us somber. It ought to make us recognize the seriousness of sin. And if you really want to know how much God hates sin, I point your attention to the cross of Christ. Look at the cross. And we see the extent to which God has gone in order to address sin and to deal with it. And so we need to recognize that God's judgment of sin is both present and future, and yet God's judgment can be dispensed with, well, has been dispensed in Christ on the cross, which leads us to the fourth question. Is anger all there is? 
is anger all there is? Because the first question I ask is, do we have an angry God? And I will tell you, if you had to choose, is God a God of anger or is God a God of love? Which? Yes. But I will tell you, I believe that God is a God of love who expresses anger against sin. Does that make sense? I believe what makes God angry is his love for people. And the devastating effect, devastation that sin brings from separation from God, what it brings to life. It's important. If God hates and judges sin, and we are sinners, and we've gotten a glimpse of our own heart, what hope do we have? The last verses of chapter 2, he says, Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again like a sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds, and your leader, your ruler, your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. When God expresses his wrath, he always expresses this promise of forgiveness, this promise of restoration. God's anger is righteous. His mercy is great. His judgments are unsearchable. God brought them out. This was fulfilled then. God brought them out of Babylon, and he fulfilled his promise of mercy. Even in the midst of judgment, he fulfills his fulfillments, always point to his promise of what he will do and what he has done for us. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there's coming a day when our exile will end. When we'll be in his presence for all eternity. But I want you to know that anytime you think of the wrath of God, you need to look at the cross of Christ. If we can go to the next slide. I want to just kind of point this out to you. For God to be just. There's always a conundrum. There's always a challenge here. Uh, How can God be just and forgive sin? A good judge, a good father, a good God always has to judge infractions, rebellion, disobedience. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs it says that the most wicked judge is the one who turns a blind eye to sin, to rebellion. And God is not a wicked judge. He is a good and holy and just judge. If sin makes God angry and God responds in his anger to appropriate judgment, what hope do we have? The hope that we have is the extent that, Christ, that God went to be the remedy for sin, to grant forgiveness, to fulfill the promise that he has for us, a ruler who will lead us out. I put 2 Corinthians 5.21 on the slide, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with this passage, but if you've never memorized it or if you're not familiar with it, learn it. Learn it. If you get confused about the anger of God, I want to show you the depth of his love. And you'll never understand the depth of his love until you understand the depth of his anger. But for our sake, that's you and me, for our benefit, for our good, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, or to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? How did God make him who knew no sin to become sin? He took your sin and my sin, the sin of everyone that will ever believe in him, and he applied it to Christ as though Christ were guilty of those sins. The judgment that we should face, the eternal judgment that we should face, he poured out on Christ on the cross. Christ who lived righteously died for sin. Sometimes 
I would encourage you as homework sometime during the week to go read the book of Hebrews. When we make light of sin, we trample underfoot the blood of Christ. You want to see the seriousness of sin, look to the cross. Now, if you're here and this doesn't make any sense to you, we'd love to talk to you more about this. I would love to talk to you more about this. There are at least a dozen people in this room who I am confident would forego lunch to talk to you about this or take you to lunch and talk to you about this. Because it's important. We want you to understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, the righteous judgment of a holy God, but the gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ, his son. And what he calls you to do is to repent, to surrender, to yield your life to him. And he cleanses you and he washes you and his judgment is removed from you because it was placed upon the Christ. It's called substitutionary atonement in him, in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news, amen? All right, our, our scripture reading last week and this week has been the wrath of God and the mercy of God. We serve a God who is holy in his wrath, and we serve a God who is gracious in his mercy. And I want you to know him. I don't want you to, I want you to understand his wrath because in understanding his wrath, you can more fully and completely understand his love, his grace, and his mercy. And folks, we need to be people who are characterized by grace. Amen? We need to be people who are characterized by mercy and kindness, displaying the character of Christ as those who have been forgiven. Isn't God good? Good. He is good indeed. God is good and God is gracious. Next week we're going to look at Micah chapters 3 through 5. A lot of good information in there as we look to the future that God conveys to us through his prophet Micah. And so I invite you to come back next week as we continue our study. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, somehow it just unsettles us too often to think of you as a God of wrath or a God who gets angry. It's because we are so often and sinfully angry our own selves. And yet we understand that, yes, you get angry, but not like we get angry. You get angry with a holy anger, a righteous anger, an anger against sin, sin that separates and sin that destroys. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to aware, be aware of the seriousness of sin, that we won't play with it, that we won't trifle with it. For those who are still in sin, for those who have never come to you in repentance and faith, for those who are slaves to sin, for those who are bound and separated from you by sin, those who are children of wrath. I pray, Father, that you will wake them up by your Holy Spirit, that you will convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray that, yes, you will show them the beauty of the Savior, the beauty of what it means to be forgiven and to stand in a right relationship with you. I pray that you'll draw them to yourself and we'll see them come in repentance and faith. Father, for those who, of us who are already saved, yet we still don't like thinking about wrath, help us to understand that the wrath that we experience is the wrath of a loving Father who loves us and every, everyone that the Lord loves, He chastises. Everyone that the Lord loves, He corrects. That our sins will not separate us. Having come to you and having been made new, our sins will not separate us from you from eternity, but 
They will certainly break fellowship. They will certainly be a reproach to your name. And that you will allow sin and you will cause sin judgments to come upon us. That we might be drawn back to you. That we might be cleansed. That our fellowship can be as it should be. As you intend it to be. Walking day by day in the Spirit. Experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. The life of Christ in us. So, Father, I thank you for today's message. I pray that your Holy Spirit will seed it well in our minds and our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen.